Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Before she became a filmmaker, Rosemary Reed worked here at WBAI. She began as the development director and went on to serve as the station's general manager. And now she's made it an 80-minute film about Steve Post, a legendary radio host who gave her her start here. The film, playing in the FM band, The Steve Post Story, premieres this Friday, March 11th, at Film Forum on West Houston Street. And it is with great pleasure that I welcome Rosemary Reed back to WBAI today. Hi, Rosemary. <laughs> Hi, Lenny. Thank you for having me today. Oh, well, how could we not talk about this? <laughs> you, you took your film's title, Playing in the FM Band, from his 1974 memoir, which he subtitled A Personal Account of Free Radio. And you include excerpts from the book. How revealing was he in the book about his ideas and his background? Well, he wrote the book, I believe, in 1974, so it was a different, well, the th mostly everything I use in the film comes after that. Mm -hmm. But he was very open and very revealing. And one of the stories that he told that I did incorporate into the, into the, into the film is his story about Debbie the Blind Transsexual. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was a full script in the book. And I guess, I guess the uh, interview must have lasted about an hour. Um, but I, I did take a number of different things from the film, and that was one of the big ones that I took. Yeah, well, that's an interesting story, which uh, we'll get to later. But I, I want to back up a little bit. At the start of the documentary, you explain that WBAI-FM was creating a new kind of radio in the 1960s. How soon did that happen after philanthropist Louis Schweitzer donated it to the Pacifica Foundation in 1960? Well, I think it really started a little later than that, maybe 1964, 65 is my understanding. Um, uh, and that was uh, FM radio. And of course, FM was in its infancy at that point. Um, yeah. And most of the programming was stylized, not any kind of free form as uh, Steve practice, in this, for lack of a better term, uh, but he and, and um, <clears throat> excuse me, Bob Fass and Larry Josephson all brought to FM a new kind of idea, which was freeform. And as Larry Josephson says, and I, I won't curse on the air, but it, he says, freeform radio, it's what the bleep you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that is very true, you know, and, uh, and they brought, they happened to be men who were, who had talent who had something to say. They had something to say personally, as you see with Steve, he brought all his inner emotions to the state, to the, to the, uh, uh, to the airwaves uh, and, 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 and brought the counterculture in. And I think that was an important development, uh, especially for the counterculture at the time. Well, the New York Times Magazine piece once described it as an anarchist circus. <laughs> How true. <laughs> During the 1960s, WBAI was a place that you could learn about many anti-establishment causes, including with um, uh, the, the, the ongoing body count uh, in the war, feminists with live coverage of, of uh, even purported bra-burning demonstration, children's lib, early fire sign theater comedy, and complete album music overnight. Right. You know, the, the war report was really very interesting because I think BAI led 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 the parade in that in the sense that you got you really got to understand what the war was about. It wasn't sanitized. It wasn't pablomized. It really went forward. And I think that was an important thing. And I think, as you said, women's women's issues were brought to the air in detail, not just, oh, there's a women's movement going on, but what it's all about. Even the even people even in the women's movement, um, um, poor black women felt left out, and they were. These were things that were discussed, you know, and brought to the airwaves. And so pimples and all were <laughs> allowed on the station. And I think that was an important thing to, to develop and happen and to be presented. Wasn't it also pressure to stop playing Society's Child, Janiceian's song about interracial relationships? I don't know about that. Mm. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well... <laughs> Some things still, similar things still happen today. So uh, when did Steve Post come to the station and under what circumstances? Uh, he came around 1964. Um, he was 20 years old at that point. He had applied for, uh, he had applied to an ad that was asking for an editor 
for I believe it was the folio, yes. And mm-hmm. he uh, applied for the job, came to the job, came to uh, the, uh, locked on the door, rang the bell, and nobody answered, and uh, nobody answered, and nobody answered, and nobody answered, and he, but he stayed, and he 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 persevered. When he got the interview, he was told that he was going to be the bookkeeper, a man who failed, seemed to have failed every math test he, he ever took. But they needed and, a bookkeeper, and so he somebody showed up for a job, and they just gave him it? Yeah. <laughs> that was it. Uh, so he didn't get the folio job. Uh, but he was there, and, and I'm not going to say a few months or a year, I just don't know. But he was there for a little while, and uh, he really liked what Bob Fass was doing. And um, he, one night, uh, he, he went up to give Bob something, maybe his paycheck or something, I don't know. And, and Steve made the uh, statement, uh, God, you guys have it easy up here, you know. And, uh, and Fass said, oh, really, is that what you think? Well, if you think that, I'm going to put you on the air. And I think the next day or something, he, he went on the air and, uh, said, and, and as you know what he says in the film, um, but he soon learned that it wasn't so easy to do. Mm-hmm. But it was that thing, that that chance with Bob Fass and making that statement that Steve got his first taste of being on the air and live on on the air. And we he does talk about that in his tapes, in the 350 some odd tapes that he left behind, not a great deal, uh, how scared he was. Uh, he felt like he was... Uh, naked in Carnegie Hall, <laughs> and we had, to, and of course in the film we <clears throat> we couldn't show him naked in Carnegie Hall, so we animated that portion of the film as we did in six, five different other places. Used animation where we just could not. There was no way to get visuals for it. We should point out that although uh, BAI. Um, really did commit to freeform radio. There were influences on commercial radio, like WOR's Gene Shepard. Yeah, exactly. Gene Shepard, and we point that out in the film as well. Gene Shepard was uh, he did uh, he did speak about his his life, but not in the way that the BAI people mm-hmm. did, and especially Steve Post. It was much more sanitized. It was much more. I, I will just say sanitized. It was he wasn't revealing his innermost fears, his anger, his his um, being upset, his uh, fa- fears of failure um, that Steve did. And he did, a, and Steve did a gamut of them. So I think Gene, and I, I'm sure that Steve listened to, to Gene Shepard mm. and learned a lot. But I think he took it that next step, as did Josephson, as did Fass, as did others on the West Coast, um, take it a step further. Well, where, okay, I'm Gene sorry. Shepard once got me in trouble with my parents because he suggested that you put your radio at the window, and he screamed out about how much uh, the, the neighbors were idiots. <laughs> well, Steve can use the word idiots, especially with the um, there was a, one of the pieces we took was his his dislike, shall we say, of the mm. Jews for Jesus on the street. He calls yeah. them. Have you listened to these idiots? You know? <laughs> um, but it was, a, it was a great. And I love that he brought New York City into the control room. And that was very I thought that was, you know, really interesting and groundbreaking on some level. Well, he could be very sweet, but he quoted Hobbes as an influence, saying, quote, I believe people are essentially brutal, murderous, lying bastards who put on masks of civility to make society work. Yeah, he did say that. I wonder how much that was sarcasm, how much that was tongue in cheek, and how much of it was um, was really his feeling. And I think it's all of it. I think that he did believe that, but it also underneath it all, he had a kind heart. He had an ability to love and to feel other people's pain. That's why I included Debbie, because I saw in that a young woman, a transsexual, who was in a lot of pain. And I think he identified with that. And I think he saw her like he saw himself on the outside. And when you see yourself on the outside, it's nice to have other people with you and uh, to say hello to. And I think that's what he did. It wasn't only that, you know, you build those people on the outside or in the minorities of some kind, build power by by numbers. They also build peace of mind and peace of heart. So peace in, in your heart. Uh, so I think that's what he did. You know, he looked, found, maybe didn't look, but he found people 
who were quote unquote on the outside like himself. No, no coincidence to me that he named his program on the outside. Uh, Debbie told him that she was having trouble with the lighthouse for the blind because they wouldn't allow her to go to many of the dances and even use the women's bathroom. So what did Steve do to help her? Well, that's interesting. Um, Steve heard her story. He knew of the lighthouse for the blind. <clears throat> Excuse me. He didn't know anybody there. But he had a friend, his mutual friend, um, uh, Neil Fabricant, who was at the New York Civil Liberties Union at the time. And he called him and he said, this is what's happening. And it's an outrage. And he said to Neil said, let me see what I can do. And with I from what Steve says in his book, with with one phone call, he cleared it all up. And Debbie was allowed to go to their dances and use the bathroom of her choice. Now we're talking 1967, 68, that she was allowed to use that bathroom. She did not have to go into the men's bathroom. And that fight so, is still being fought today. Yes, yes, it's still being fought today. Exactly, exactly. But I think, you know, as uh, someone said in the, in, in, the, uh, in the film, I think it was uh, um, Frank Millspar, you know, homosexuality was hardly discussed in 1967, 68. People still had wrong ideas about it. So imagine doing a trans a transgender woman. It was groundbreaking. Hmm. I mean, I've used that word twice already, but it's true. I mean, it's really very true. And you know what was really interesting to me, Lenny? Not only did he have him have her on the air, but the people who called up, I only uh, they were like 12 or 15 phone calls. I don't really remember. But not one of them was nasty. Not one of them was was um, uh, uh, mean to her or ununderstanding. They were ve- really listening and trying to understand what it was about in a very kind way. You don't always get that. But B, but I think, of course, BAI for one thing. But Steve specifically had that kind of an audience. That's who he. Uh, that's who gravitated toward him. People who had who were thinking they may not agree with it. That's fine. But they wanted to understand. They wanted to know what was going on. How do they learn more about it? He spoke about everything from Vietnam and President Nixon to his neuroses and health. <laughs> and his style has been described as wry, witty and sardonic, curmudgeonly, fetchy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of his more memorable lines was, just when you think you've scraped the bottom, you find you've only scrapped, uh, scratched the surface. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's how he thought. You know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's work all the way, all the time, you know. And, and uh, um, it, again, it, it lends to the kind of personality that he had, this exterior of being a little curmudgeonly, you know, and sarcastic and... Um, maybe not interested in what you have to say, but I don't think that was really, and I think underneath it all, there was a, there was a marshmallow. Did he have a lot of imitators? Uh, you mean people who uh, did... Def- try uh, to, try to be, try to do versions of what he did. Yeah, I'm not really sure, but I think today, at the time, I'm not really mm. sure, but I think today the work that he did has led us to things like Saturday Night Live, um, um, Howard Stern, uh, The Daily Show. Uh, I think all that has some germ in the beginnings with Steve being there. I mean, even the, the ages of, of the people I just mentioned, you know, it would be, they would listen. They, they, they were of the age where they could listen and would listen to, um, to Steve. Well, I do remember there are an awful lot of people who are imitating Larry Josephson, Bob Fass, and Steve Post at that time. And he even started seeping into commercial radio. Um, the, I have uh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Well, Howard Stern is certainly commercial radio. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large at, on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. And I'm speaking with Rosemary Reed, whose latest film, and I can say that, her latest film, is playing in the FM band, The Steve Post Story, which premieres this Friday, March 11th at Film Forum on West Housen Street. Um, one of, uh, hadn't he been playing with the idea of being a radio personality since he was as young as eight years old? 
Yes, he got he took his father's recorder and um, and his father was not happy about it because one of the things Steve always did, anything he got into his hands, he always broke. So his father was not happy, <laughs> but he would go under the covers and record stories that he had in his head that he made up. And he developed a person named Paige Turner. <laughs> and uh, there was P-A-I-G-E. P-A-I-G-E, Paige Turner, but Paige a Turner, pun, right. obviously. He liked puns. Paige Turner and uh, Luke Warm. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Luke Warm. <laughs> yeah. And these became his, you know, his um, sort of external persona. And uh, he wrote stories or recorded stories under the, uh, with a flashlight, under the covers, literally, you know. So that was, um, that was very funny to, to hear about that he had done that, but very that's Steve for you. You know, from an early age, he really wanted to do radio. Yeah, he was kind of preparing for what he would be later. Uh, yeah. I mentioned uh, Richard Nixon. He, Richard Nixon was something of an obsession with him. Didn't Steve, did he really wait outside President Nixon's East 65th Street townhouse in his car? Oh, he certainly did. And for if you want evidence, you can ask Frank Millspar, you can ask Richard Barr, Linda Perry. These were people who actually sat there with him and waited. And uh, it's on 65th Street near Hunter College. And uh, we felt we we shot there, actually. Some of the some of the photos are in the film. But yes, he was uh, certainly obsessed. He did not get to meet him at 65th Street. He did see him come out of a car, but he'd never met him until Karen Frillman from WNYC was recording one of his books. Um, and uh, I think it's just called Nixon. And she, she asked Steve if he would like to come along to the recording. And he, of course, jumped at it. But Karen says that uh, he was <laughs> on the way there. He was very sick. He was so nervous about meeting him. And uh, I'm not going to give away the story there because it's it's funny what he does there. It's, it happens to be Valentine's Day. Uh, but yes, and that was the first time that he uh, met Nixon. He took a photograph with him, which we use in the film. And um, I don't know what he did after that, but uh, that, was, that was the time he met him. And he also traveled to California, to San Clemente, where he lived to try and get a, a, a look at him. That didn't work out at all either because it was more of a compound and there were guards all around. Um, so this particular thing, because Karen was involved in it, she managed to bring him to the studio. And at the studio, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, at the studio, he met him. And I think, and she says... You know, he acquiesced to everything. Oh, yes, Mr. Nixon, would you like some water? <laughs> the opposite of what she thought he might do. You know, she was probably a little nervous about bringing him, but he was very nice to, to Mr. Nixon, though he never liked it. Uh, now, when he arrived, Bob Fass and Larry Josephson were already at WBAI. Had, were they establishing a style? I think so. Yes, I think they were they were there uh, a few years before Steve, but their style was different. I think he Steve added. I mean, it was all free form, but I think Steve added the con. His content was different. He presented his content differently, you know. And I think that that was a good thing. I think that we have three different um, examples of how free form radio can be used. Yes, there are elements that overlap. That's true, but Steve brought that I think the others did not. Uh, Steve, uh, Larry to some degree, but more, shall we say, more of a high tone or a little bit more angry mm. than Steve in, in the personal sense. Uh, but I think that where it differed was the content. Steve really took New York City. He took his own neuroses. He put it out there on, on, the, uh, on display for anybody to listen to um, and to comment on. And, uh, and he didn't always get nice comments uh, but he did it because uh, it's freeform radio, and this was his form of freeform radio. And, you know, I feel very blessed in a sense. I'm not a religious person at all, but I do feel blessed that, you know, I was able to make this film. And it, it came about quite accidentally. And how it happened was one day, maybe five years ago, Carol Ratner and I <clears throat> were having dinner and we were just, you know, talking about anything and BAI came up and uh, she or I think I said to her, 
You know, BAI, Steve Post gave me my first paying job in radio in which she jumped up and said, he did that for me too. Mm. He gave me my first job in radio, not the way mine was, hers was on the air as a, as a radio engineer. Um, and so I, she said to me, you know, maybe someday we could work on a film together about Steve. And so, you know, if this little dinner with um, over salmon and Pinot Grigio didn't happen, um, this film might not have happened. Well, you mentioned Carol Ratner, but there were women who also became prominent at the station, like Mickey Waldman. Yes. Right. Uh, they right. all came later. Uh, they all came later. Yes. Uh, Carol came, I think, I don't think she came as early as 64. It might have been like 68 or maybe 69. I'm not sure of the date. Uh, I don't think she came in 64, but I could be wrong. But there was Annette Renone, um, who was the person who actually brought me in as a, I volunteered for a little while at WBAI. But I had known her through, this was now, we're talking the late 70s early 80s, when Annette had been gone from WBAI, she was at the um, Brooklyn City, uh, Brooklyn Borough President's office. And she was working with an organization that I had been working with in Brooklyn. And she said, she just mentioned that they needed volunteers to do some of the fundraising. And that's how I got there. And then I met Steve. Well, as I remember it, because I also worked at BAI starting 1977, uh, the station could be a chaotic place to work. Uh, in, in thinking it over, did you come to the conclusion that there were very few, if any, rules? Uh, there were uh, there were very few rules. Some were imposed by the station, uh, and some were imposed by the by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the FCC. In other words, uh, the words that you couldn't say, which were the result of a, a broadcast on WBAI, it wound up going designed, to the Supreme you, Court. You designed the, um, the the poster for it, a great mm -hmm. poster. Yeah, yeah. But there was also stuff from the FCC um, uh, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We were getting community grants at that time. I don't know if the station gets them anymore, but they were pretty big grants. And we had to adhere to certain rules and regulations. Um, and unless, uh, or you would be cut off from these grants that basically saved the station year after year in many ways. You know, they were big grants. Uh, so there were rules that we had to adhere to. Uh, some of them overlapped with the FCC. You know, you couldn't drink in master control. Um, but gee, what, what? Now you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Put that Prina Grigio down. <laughs> um, um, anyway, so that's, uh, yeah, there were rules, but they weren't as strict. And the rules on the air, of course, were the uh, seven dirty words and other words, of course, um, but other than that, you could basically talk about anything. And, BA, and people on WBAI's air did do that. Yeah, I'm fine. That was one of the wonderful things for me for the, uh, the years that I did a show called Round Midnight, Monday nights from midnight to five, where uh, anything went. But the, that's a, a different story. Um, wasn't one station manager jailed? Ed Goodman was jailed. Yes, that's true. Um, um, I think it was the, it had to do with something on the air that he didn't, I, I don't remember mm. exactly, but yes, he was. Do you remember the story? Cause I, no, I don't, but I, I do remember that. the, the next, the next big thing, Anna Kossoff, who was the station manager in the 70s, said that most of WBI's 20 full-time paid workers and the 80 volunteers view the radio station as a commune. It's a lifestyle, she said. They resist a substantial change as destroying their commune. It's a way of life of the 60s, and they haven't gotten out of it. And then she named Pablo Yoruba Guzman to be program right. director, and the right. commune went crazy. <laughs> Well, that was a terrible time, February 11th, 1977, when the station went off the air because of it. Um, she didn't know anything about WBAI in any real detail. And to bring in Pablo was a, a total misunderstanding of what it wasn't that I wouldn't say that 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 BAI was not resi was resistant, not resistant to change. They had to change. They had to bring more women in. They had to bring more people of color. But the way to do it was not to bring in 
uh, salsa radio. I mean, it was just, it went against everything. It smacked of commercialism. And we were, at, we were what we are on the middle of the FM dial. And in those times, it was very important that we were on the middle of the FM dial because mm. it's a commercial uh, dial. So Well, it's a knows? commercial, it's it was a commercial station. So it, the license yeah. is still a commercial license. license. It's not a public radio license to this right, day. Right, that's correct. I don't know anymore because I'm not involved, but I would suspect you're correct. Um, but it makes it a lot more valuable than if it were a public radio license. I'm not sure it's as value as it is today as it was then mm -hmm. because of you don't need to be in the middle of the FN dial because of the technology. But she basically had no understanding. She did, did BAI need to wake up and, and, and include more minorities, conclude more? Absolutely. But that was not the way to go. And mm -hmm. that was very destructive. It almost destroyed us totally. I did my first show on BAI on Easter Sunday. I did a gospel show on uh, Easter Sunday, March 1977, after the station had been off the air for almost two months as oh. a result of that controversy with Pablo Yoruba Guzman. Um, and uh, a lot of people were banned from the air at the time. It took a while for the station to even get back to where it had been. Yes, that's correct. Um, it may not have ever gotten back to where it was when you think about things now. Well, Bob Fest uh, was allowed back on eventually, yes. and some of the others eventually. eventually. Was allowed back on. Mm -hmm, that's true. And uh, they patched things up, so to speak, and the station was back on. But And I came after that. Um, so I'm glad that uh, the station got back on. I hope that it stays on for a very long time to come. Uh, but that certainly did hurt us enormously. The studios were located then in a deconsecrated church. They were just great. Why did BAI have to move out of the church and relocate to studios on 8th Avenue and 35th Street, which were pretty good as well, but the church was a special situation? Yeah, the church had the uh, the big room for the mm. free music store and everything. I, had, I, I, I set up some live performances as a result. Well, then, you know, you, mm -hmm. you know, even better than I, because I wasn't there. Um, I came at 505 8th Avenue. Uh, I think it was a question of money. I also think that the stage, the, the church wanted them out for some real estate reason. Um, but I don't want to swear to that. But that's what I sort of remember. I, I seem to remember Ed Koch wanted to tax BAI because BAI had been making fun of him. Oh, well, that wrong. was Steve for you. Uh, Steve, uh, Steve makes fun of, made fun of Koch all the time. Uh, it could be. Uh, I don't. I never heard that story. Uh, I heard it was a real, mostly a real estate issue that they wanted it back. They were going to sell it to their highest bidder and make a lot of money, which eventually they did. If you go past the church today, you'll find that it's a big apartment building. Well, it was the studios were just fabulous. Who would have imagined, considering the modest situation we have today, that we once had this immense facility? Yeah, yeah, that was wonderful. Yeah, but it's not there now, unfortunately. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And not a moment too soon, for without warning, my bowels screamed out. I grabbed the eating section of the New York Times and dashed, pants already unbuckled, out of the studio and into the tiny bathroom marked Guest Lavatory. I slammed the door, whirled around to the toilet, and in the instant before my flesh made contact with the seat, I realized that I was clutching a cold metal object in my right hand. It was the inside handle of the bathroom door. I was, apparently, locked in. A more mechanical person would have figured out a way to reassemble the inside one and open the door or craft something out of two pencils and rotate them and get out. But Steve was at the mercy of the world. Then, with all the power in my aging body, I flung myself squarely into the center of the door, ricocheted off it, and bounced against the tiles, wrenching my arm, neck, shoulder, buttocks, knees, back. I looked up at the window above the toilet. I knew it led to the ledge that encircled the studio complex on the 39th floor. Steve Post is definitely not a brave person. So why then did the same Steve Post not hesitate for a moment 
to climb out on a ledge 39 stories above the concrete streets of lower Manhattan because the air comes first. Face of Steve Post uh, there. Uh, that's Steve sounded on the air. And I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Rosemary Reed. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $150 or more, you will receive a pair of tickets to the opening night screening of the film we are discussing, which is the uh, playing in the FM band, the Steve Post story. Go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. We'll be happy to send you that. Uh, But remember, we're only talking about two pairs of tickets, so they'll probably go fast. But don't forget to make that $150 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much. And And it's the March 12th program at 7 p.m., which is when we'll be there. And that'll be at at Film Forum. Right. My guest is Rosemary Reed, who uh, is the filmmaker of playing in the FM band, The Steve Post Story, which premieres, as I said, this coming Friday. But you can get tickets to the Saturday performance. Now, he left WBAI to host a show on WMYC in 1981, Morning Music. How much of his personality could he reveal on that more establishment-minded station? I know oh, I had to adjust my style when I began working on WNYC AM in 1985. Changed or was the same? No, I had to adjust totally because yeah. yeah. I, I had also, you know, people said, you can't do this, you can't do that. Right, right. Yeah, well, it was the same for Steve. I mean, he had to cut back or pull back. Uh, But he had ways of doing things, the way he did his morning music show, the news on the morning music show. There was always this little bit of sarcasm. You know, um, there was a wonderful story which we could never find uh, because uh, it's my understanding that the the morning music program in the beginnings, which NYC was such a different place in in the early 80s, that some of the most of it was never taped. Or if there was tape, it's not around. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a great story that he told a commercial that came on in which there was a, a rodent killer, squirrel killer, and he named did it very straight. And at the end of it, at the end of the straight part, he says, "And um, and you'll be you'll be happy and free from rodents." And then Steve said. Not if you're the squirrel, you won't be happy. <laughs> so he managed to do those kinds of things yeah. um, with his. Uh, we use some of the one. We use some of the um, the uh, morning. Uh, the music. Uh, excuse me. The, uh, the the news pieces on our on our, in our film. But I think that the most important thing, other than how wonderful he was on the air was his ability to raise money for WNYC. That's because his audience loved him. He's been credited with having played a major role in helping WNYC raise the money to buy its license from the city when Rudy Giuliani tried to sell the station. That's right. I think they loved him, but they also trusted him. That he's saying this and it must be true and we got to do it. We've got to help because we want to keep, as he says, keep public radio for generations to come. And that was generosity on his part to, to look into the future. That it's not just about him. It's about New York with a public radio station. Could you imagine New York without a public radio station? I can't. I can't. Well, Laura Walker, who was the uh, station manager at the time, says that Um, uh, WMYC is here in New York City because of Steve, although I guess she doesn't remember that I also raised a lot of money (laughs) during that campaign. And she doesn't say he's there, she says primarily. She doesn't say he's the only one. Yeah, but he did. He had a a very loyal audience and he was still doing the morning show, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, when WMYC FM, which is where he was, changed its format to all talk after 9-11, uh, changing everything. The AM then, uh, it, it had just been AM all talk. Steve began doing a weekly program called The No Show. What was that like? Well, uh, he was, he had, I don't know what the, what the, um, 
the details are, but he definitely, it's my understanding that he was asked to leave, is that, am I correct? But he uh, had to leave the morning music, music show and he was given this one, this thing called the no show, in which it was an, uh, an hour every week, I believe. I, and, and I have a lot of the tapes, maybe all of them actually. Um, and he did this uh, show. It was more in the style of what he used to do. It wasn't you know, as strict as, as um, morning music was. Uh, but during some time, maybe halfway through, he was really beginning to get sick and he didn't have the energy. Um, and he was out a lot and there were lots of rebroadcast. Um, and that went up until he died in 14. I think it went up to 2009. I'm not going to swear to that, but I think that's when it was his last show it was, in, was in the end or the middle of 2009. Um, well, should I clarify what a, happened? After 9 yeah, 11, uh, they decided to make FM a talk station. So all the music shows that had been there, some of them were retained, but uh, really all that changed when uh, uh, WMYC bought WQXR from the New York Times and then moved all the music shows to WQXR. Right. Okay. Hmm. So it's complicated, but Steve was sick. On and off the air, right? Uh, yes. But he he was doing a show that combined music commentary and satire. Right. That was the no show. Uh-huh. Uh, and he came up with that name, obviously. Right. Uh, and it's, it's subject to interpretation. Will he not show up? Mm -hmm. uh, is it just not a show? You know, I mean, it was a, like the outside. <laughs> it was a great title because you can interpret it however you, you wanted to. Well, he retired in 2009, but uh, he still lived on for a number of years. Was yeah, he, he just, died in 14. Was he, uh, was he just unable to do a radio show on a regular basis? You know, I think so. That might be a better question for Frank Millspar. Mm. Um, I just think he was weak. Um, he didn't have the energy that he once had. I think that he might have seen that it was seen the writing on the wall, that it was time for him to go. And maybe he just couldn't bring himself to do it. It was part, mostly it was a part of his identity as, you know, one day it's going to happen to me. Filmmaking is a part of my identity I'm, and I'm not going to be able to do it. Um, and it's the same thing. And his was even more because it was a day, a daily, it was, excuse me, a weekly show. Um, and I think he just really felt tired. Um, and I think he was conflicted, really conflicted about it. He loved radio, as you well know, yeah. and he loved his audience, and he loved being on the air, and he loved connecting with people. And he, was, and he must have had inner turmoil about it all. He was a fun was colleague so as well. Very he was generous. what? I'm sorry? He was a what fun you... colleague. He oh, yeah. Great, yeah, yeah. Uh, great bumping into him in the hall. <laughs> right, exactly. You know how, I, how he got me to be the manager was that uh, I was there one day, he was working, and I needed to go to the ladies' room. And he saw me leave for the ladies' room. So I went to the ladies' room, I came out, and there is Steve Post leaning against the wall with a cigarette hanging out of his hands. And he said, he said, I didn't want to miss you. I didn't know if you were going to leave, but I didn't want to miss you. So I'm here, and I want to know. He told me that he was going to leave, and he wanted to put my name in for being, uh, to, to be the manager. And meanwhile, people are walking in and out of the men's room, the women's room, we're standing there talking about this. But he followed me. <laughs> and then that's when he asked me. You included, but he was fun. He was so much fun. You included and, some of the fan letters he received in the film, including Elena Clements. Yes. Uh, you brought it to New York to include her in the film? Yeah. She was such a fan. I, would, I was talking to her on the phone. And I said, this woman's got to come up and 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 do it. And so uh, we we flew her up from Mexico. She stayed uh, in someone's house, uh, I think her, her friend for many years. And um, yeah, we brought her up. And I would have brought more up if there were people who I found letters from who could be as as wonderful as Elena. I, I would have brought brought some, another person up. Uh, but I thought that she, her drawings, the, the stick figures, she's a wonderful painter. And she just loved Steve so much. And she told me they got it through, her, through a very tough period in her life that was going on for about four or five years. And uh, I said, this woman really needs to be brought up. 
Steve also brought some other funny people on and uh, had had them do bits. Uh, I remember Marshall Efron playing a character named Rumpled Foreskin. Yeah, right. Right. Uh, You know, before I answer that, I want you to know that Bob Fass left behind 10,000, 12,000 hours of tape. It's a hell of a lot of tape. Mm -hmm. Steve Post left behind 350 hours. That's approximately. And some of that was double the the no show repeats. So I had I had a date for the no show. Then it would come up again, a repeat from that date because he was so, so ill at one time. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it was, I didn't have a lot to choose from in the end. Um, I was hoping that there were people to, oh, when you get to Marshall, he's going to be, they're going to be a hundred hours of Marshall. And they didn't know I only had 350 hours of tape. And so of course I said, well, they don't know. So maybe there's 30 hours. Well, there wasn't anything close to 30 hours. There wasn't anything close to three hours or four hours, maybe, uh, or five hours maybe of Paul Krasner when I know there must have been triple that, if not more and than And none that. of that's available online? It, yes, it will be available online. Uh, Danny Kornhertz is, um, Kornhertz, excuse me, is uh, uploading all the uh, all the digitized, well, and all of it, in other words, onto archives.org, I think it is. Um, I can give you the exact title um but i it's uh, off the top of my head i can't think of it but it is already up there i think about a hundred hours has have been placed up on this archives and it little by little the whole 350 will go up and if anyone has any other tapes that could be used i would love you to get in touch with danny uh, because uh, these are, will be available for people for research, for people to use in radio programs, film programs, whatever, students of communication of the history of radio, the history of radio and television, the history of FM radio, um, the history, all history that relates to this. People can use these tapes free of charge is what I understand. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm speaking with Rosemary Reed, whose latest film playing in the FM band, the Steve Post Story, premieres this coming Friday, March 11th, at Film Forum on West Housen Street. Let's talk a bit about your career. You, uh, well, first, Steve died of cancer at the age of 70, uh, from the same kind of cancer that his mother had. She was yeah. 37 when she died. He was 70. But um, he, he had been off the air, as we said, for five right. years by that time. Um, you left radio to make films. Had you had your fill of radio? <laughs> First of all, wait, let me correct you one thing. She was 38, not 37. Um, uh, no, I had, no, I went right into radio. I left uh, doing production. I got... Uh, I was very fortunate. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting gave me numerous grants and pretty big grants mm-hmm. to produce documentaries and to produce radio documentaries and to produce um, uh, dramatic readings based on works of literature that had human rights themes. And I got, I don't know, a number of grants and produced them. One of the one of the pieces I produced was the life of Mikhail, the presidency of Mikhail Gorbachev. Mm-hmm. And um, my lawyer said to me, you know, I'm, he called me on the phone and he said, you know, I'm going to Russia today to meet with Gorbachev, with so-and-so to do a film. So I said, get me the radio rights. And he did. And the film fell through. So I decided that maybe I should do the film. And I spoke, I, I, I happened to be in Italy at a, at a radio conference. And who was there but Gene Cott from the uh, CPB. And I got to talking to him. He and his wife and I had lunch. And I, he said, well, tell me about this Gorbachev thing that you're interested in. I said, well, I have the radio rights. I've done the radio piece. One of the reasons I was there, because it was being aired there. I said, what I really want are the television rights. And he said, well, tell me about it. I said, I said if I get the rights, we can use, how much do you need? When do you want to do this? Blah, blah, blah. And I gave him a price off the top of my head. And he said, you get him to sign on the dotted line. I'll give you the money. And that's how it began. And it was this, it began with Gorbachev. It, it it uh, parlayed into two other films, one called Women, um, excuse me, Widow of the Revolution, the Anna Lorena story. Anna, Anna Lorena married um, Nikolai Bukharin, uh, one of the founders of the revolution, along with Stalin and Trotsky and um, 
uh, Stalin and Lenin, how could I forget? Uh, and uh, she was 26 years his junior. When she grew up, she married him. Eventually, uh, Bukharin was killed at one of Stalin's show trials. She was sent to the Gulag, lost her child for 20 years. And so this story, uh, when I met with uh, Katrina Vanden Heuvel and Steve Cohen, who I brought on board to um, to see if they would, uh, he would be the interviewer. And he did everything. He got us in there. He was the interviewer for the film, for, for all three films that I made in, in Russia. And, but I am, it's a trilogy in a sense. It starts with the history and then with Anna Lorena, then Gorbachev's presidency. And then the, the third one was called Russia Betrayed Voices of the Opposition. And this was the opposition for opposition leaders to Yeltsin. And uh, they were on PBS. Um, and Anna, Anna Lorena's story was a major hit. It was sold nationally, internationally. It was uh, picked up in three or four different languages. Um, and is still being distributed um, through uh, um, PBS International. Well, then I went, I decided. Gorbachev, you must think about Gorbachev when you watch the news these days, but that's a whole other story. Didn't you also do a film of women scientists like? Yes, that's what I was about to tell you. Irene Joliet Curie, the daughter of Marie Curie? Yeah, yeah. I. I, uh, John Simon, who was the manager of WBAI, was at his house one day and he went to his bookshelf and he said, this is the film you have to do next. And it was called a Life, uh, Lisa Meitner, A Life in Physics. And I applied to, this, to uh, the, uh, my film. One of my films was uh, at Anna Lorena's story, the Russian story, was at the um, Hamburg Film Festival. And everyone said to me, oh, you must go. You must go to Berlin because it's just great. And I said, okay, so I went to Berlin and I fell in love. And I said, how am I going to do this? Come here and live. So I went for the summer. I worked at the Max Planck Institute for the, uh, did all my visual research there. And I applied to the, to the uh, I had a, I had a um, National Science Foundation grant to go there and spend my time there. And then I applied to the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation and they gave me the money to do um, three films on women in science, two were completed. The first one was, of course, uh, Lisa Meitner, who discovered nuclear fission in 1938. She, of course, had to be uh, lifted out of the country, so to speak, because she could have faced concentration camp. Uh, and then she, uh, her partner, Adohan, never let anybody know that she was working with him for a number of reasons. But after the war was over, he never gave her the credit and the Nobel Prize went to him and nothing to her. Then I did a film uh, on Anna, uh, on uh, Irene Curie, the daughter of Marie and Pierre Curie, also a Nobel Prize winner. And this was on the same grant that the, that the uh, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation gave me. And I spent three months in Paris at the, uh, at the Curie Institute, which was wonderful. Wonderful in a sense, but you, we had a Geiger counter and we could, things were still radioactive in that, in that uh, laboratory. But we made that film. Uh, what I love about that film was that I was, I was able to use a lot of home movies where I wasn't able with, uh, Anna, with uh, Lisa Meitner. We're close to out uh, of time, Rosemary. But, oh, uh, I'm sorry. I und- no, no, please. But I, you've been in England recently because you're working on another film? Yes. I'm working on another film again with Carol Ratner. And this is a film called Forgetting the Many, the Royal Pardon of Alan Turing. Wait, wasn't um, he the subject of Imitation Game with Benedict Yeah, but Cumberland? we're not doing anything about his science except for about 10 minutes in the film. Mm-hmm. We are looking at his pardon in, 19, in, in 2000, 2009. Um, uh, I forgot the, the person, Gordon, Prime Minister Gordon. Um, I can't think of his name. Uh, sorry, uh, he gave him a pardon, mm-hmm. and uh, he a gave him an apology. He gave him an apology because he was that he was convicted of gross indecency in 1952, which which was really gross indecency with laws used against gay men. Mm-hmm. A terrible witch hunt was going on, and so in 2009 he got his apology. 2013, the Queen gave him a royal pardon because the Parliament wouldn't give him a statutory pardon. And so I decided this was an interesting story. It was a human rights issue. And I contacted Peter Tatchell, who was one of the main 
human rights people or in the world. And he helped me develop this film. He got me all the men that I interviewed. He brought me onto meetings. He, he really, really paved the way for me to do this film. He also introduced me to the Turing family and the Turing family, his niece and great niece, are where I work very closely with them on this issue. So how close and, are you to completing the film? Oh, we're very close this year. Um, and I would say maybe October, so September, October. I'm going to invite you to make a return visit to the show when the film comes out. Okay, we'll talk about oh, it. Oh, I'd love it. Thank you. Thank you. But meanwhile, uh, this film, uh, playing in the FM band, the Steve Post story, is premiering this coming Friday, March 11th, at Film Forum on West Housen Street. And it has been my great pleasure to have Rosemary Reed, its filmmaker, on our show today. Well, it's just great. And uh, the film is so much, so interesting. And it brought back so many memories, not just about Steve, but about uh, FM radio in New York over the years. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was very hard to work on this film because, you know, Steve was always in my ear. I mean, he was always in my ear because I was listening to 350 hours of tape. And you don't just listen once, you listen twice, three times. Sure. If you like something, you might listen 10 times, you know. So it's like he was there for me. He came alive. And I used the tapes as the groundwork for the film because I didn't have a live subject. I had um, uh, the people who did the Bob Fast film. Bob was alive at the time. When you have someone who's alive, you create one kind of film. And when someone is not is not alive, you create a different kind of film. And what I wanted to do was constantly hear his voice, and laughing, have, crying, whatever. And I have to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you can get a podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Uh, BAI, as you probably have uh, figured out from what we were talking about, um, has had financial difficulties over the years. And uh, we need all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make contributions at whatever level they're comfortable with uh, to keep us going. Uh, you can do that by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or you can go online to give to wbai.org. That's give and the number 2, wbai.org. Please do it right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $150 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a pair of tickets to the film we've been discussing, the uh, playing in the FM band, the Steve Post story, which premieres this Friday, March 11. Well, actually, it would be for the screening on Saturday, March 12th at Film Forum on West House and Street. Um, but uh, you got to call right now because it's these tickets are going to go right away. And then again, you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And during Women's History Month, we are offering the 8-gigabyte Women's History Collection and a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on its listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at large, why not let us uh, know that you appreciate what we do? Again, the number 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. Uh, yeah, I hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guests will be Drs. Martin Abramson and Sanjeev Chopra discussing their new book, Conquer Your Diabetes, Prevention, Control, Remission. We'll see you then.